Welcome to the second season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Kalispell, Montana is a small city located in Flathead County. In 2010, it had a population of around 20,000. The city's name is Salish, meaning flat land above the lake, referring to Flathead Lake, the largest natural freshwater lake in the western United States. Some people who came from Kalispell that you may recognize are Amanda Kimmel from Survivor and actress Michelle Williams. Two more of its residents would become well-known, but for very different reasons. Cody Johnson was your typical 25-year-old, hanging out with his friends, playing softball, having a few beers, and racing cars for fun. In his young life, he'd already accumulated numerous speeding tickets and totaled off his pickup truck. Jordan Graham grew up in a deeply religious family. She was quiet, some would say immature for her age, an introvert who did not communicate well with adults or strangers. Her parents didn't allow her to start dating until she was 18, and sex before marriage was not permitted. She faithfully attended church every Sunday, and after high school, worked in a daycare. In 2010, Cody and Jordan began dating. There was something about her that made Cody change his partying ways. He hardly drank anymore, stopped hanging out with his car buddies, and began attending church every week with Jordan and her family. The church members liked Cody, and so did Jordan's family. But Cody's friends weren't impressed with Jordan. They just plain didn't like her. They felt he had become infatuated with her, but she didn't return the sentiment. ABC News reported that when Cody told his friend Cameron that he was going to propose to Jordan, Cameron didn't think it was a good idea and told his friend he should reconsider. In December 2012, the couple became engaged. Jordan wanted to surprise Cody with a song, written especially for their first dance at their wedding, and she worked extra hours to pay for it. Songwriter Elizabeth Shea wrote the words to the song, which included, You're mine. You helped me climb higher for a better view. You're my safest place to fall. You never let me go. When the song was written, Jordan and her brother flew to California so she could sing back up on the vocals, an added special touch. The young couple were married in a park in Kalispell 
on June 29, 2013. Jordan was dressed in a white off-the-shoulder gown with her long dark hair swept back and held in place with a tiara. Cody was dressed in a dark suit, white shirt, and a necktie with a white rose pinned to his left lapel. The 22-year-old bride walked down the aisle with tears running down her face. Some thought they were happy tears. Others wondered if she was sad or upset. The couple only had time for a one-night honeymoon. Then it was back to their daily life. But Jordan was having doubts that she'd made the right decision. She texted her best friend, asking if she'd done the right thing, getting married so young. Maybe they should have waited, at least until they were a little older. Her friend told her to relax. She'd had similar fears when she got married, and it all worked out, and that Jordan's marriage would work out too. But days later, Jordan felt she needed to be honest with Cody about how she was feeling and planned to tell him on Sunday. NBC News reported that on that Sunday morning, it was July 7th, a week after the wedding. Cody's new father-in-law called him about their plans to go kayaking, but Cody canceled their trip because Jordan told him she had a surprise planned for him. Then his friend called and invited him to a round of golf, and again, Cody said he couldn't go. Cody and Jordan went to church. Cody told a church member that Jordan had a surprise planned for him later that day. Afterwards, the newlyweds joined family and friends and went to dinner. At 8.20 p.m., the couple drove home. Cody was waiting for his surprise. Court records reveal that at 8.56 p.m., Jordan texted a friend that she was about to talk to him about their marriage. Her friend responded, I'll pray for you guys. Jordan texted back, and I quote, But dead serious, if you don't hear from me at all again tonight, something's happened. Jordan and Cody's discussion did not go well. They got into an argument, and he suggested they drive to Glacier National Park and watch the sunset. It was miles of asphalt and gravel that took visitors on a breathtaking trip through alpine meadows, pounding waterfalls, and lakes and mountains carved by glaciers. Cody held an annual pass and was a frequent visitor. The security camera at the park photographed them entering at 9.17 p.m. He enjoyed driving fast around its winding curves on a road named going to the sun. His favorite corner was called the loop, as it featured a hairpin turn. Once at the loop, Cody parked the car at the viewpoint, and the couple ventured out for a short walk on the hiking trail. They started to argue. They descended down the trail to a rocky cliff, 
and stopped near a stump. Their argument grew heated. Jordan turned and started to walk away. But Cody grabbed her arm to stop her. She removed his grip. His back was to her. She raised both hands and pushed hard. Cody lost his balance and fell off the cliff. He landed 200 feet below, face down in a shallow pool of water. At 25, Cody was dead, and his bride was now a widow. Jordan drove Cody's car back to Kalispell. She did not stop to ask for help, nor did she call 911. Instead, by 11 p.m., she was texting her friends. Her fingers tapped out a plot, a fictitious story meant to cover her tracks. The next day, Cody's co-workers wondered where he was, and his friends hadn't heard from him, which was highly unusual. His mother, along with his friends, began looking for him. They snooped through his bank accounts, but there was no activity, nothing to tell them where Cody was. Then one of his friends, who was certain that something bad had happened to him, and that Jordan was responsible, broke into their townhouse. He looked for evidence of a crime. Court records revealed that he searched the crawl space and even the trunk of Cody's car, looking for his body. And he checked the dirty laundry, looking for blood. Suspicion grew among Cody's friends. They suspected Jordan had killed him, and the rumors started to spread. On Tuesday, authorities interviewed Jordan. She told them that when she arrived home that night, her phone battery was almost dead. So she used the car to drive and pick up her charger. The location she drove to was not disclosed. Then she received a text from Cody saying that he was going for a drive with a friend from out of town. And then she headed home, and when she got near, she saw Cody in a dark-colored car pulling out of the driveway. Authorities asked to see the text messages, but Jordan couldn't produce them. She claimed it was routine for her and Cody to delete their messages. Rather odd behavior for a young married couple. The next day, Jordan went to her father's home and created a fake email account. Then she sent herself an email pretending to be someone named Tony. Tony told Jordan that Cody had gone for a hike and that he fell and was dead. Jordan showed the email to a friend, then took it to police. That night, a prayer service was held for Cody at the church. Jordan told another friend about the email she'd received 
and that Cody was dead. Afterwards, Jordan took a group of family and friends to the Glacier National Park to look for Cody. But she didn't plan out the timing, and soon after they arrived, it was too dark. She wanted to climb down a ravine to search for him, but her friends talked her out of it. Jordan didn't give up on her plan. The very next day, she took her mother, brother, and two friends back to the park. This time, she descended down the steep ravine. She spotted Cody's body in the same place she had left him four days earlier. She called out that she could see a body. Her brother climbed down the ravine and stood next to Jordan. Cody's body was face down in the stream at the bottom of the cliff. Court records reported that when a National Park Service ranger asked Jordan how she knew where to look, that she replied, Cody's car buddies from Washington probably came and got him. He always takes his out-of-state friends here. The ranger commented that he thought it was unusual that she was the one who found his body. And she responded with, It was a place he wanted to see before he died. Cody's body was recovered the next day. Nearby was a piece of black cloth. And a little further away, they found one of his shoes. He was not wearing his wedding ring. Five days later, on July 16th, the FBI interviewed Jordan. She finally admitted that she had lied. Lied about her husband's death to numerous law enforcement agencies. She told detectives what happened that night. She said that she didn't want to do that trail because I was afraid that I mean there's a cliff right there and you could fall. And she claimed Cody said, I could do this with a blindfold on. I could just put it on, take a step, and I wouldn't even fall. And she said, it just kept going through my head that you are going to fall or something. She said Cody grabbed her arm. She removed it. And that she could have walked away, but didn't. In anger, she pushed Cody off the cliff. Jordan was arrested and charged with first-degree murder, second-degree murder, and making a false statement. On the murder charges, she faced life in prison. She was held in jail for two months until a judge said that she was not a flight risk nor a threat to the community and ordered her released and placed under house arrest. Jordan's best friend cut off contact with her and the church the couple had attended asked Jordan to leave and told her they didn't want her coming to church any longer. 
The prosecution went after Jordan with both barrels loaded. In their trial brief, they indicated they planned to prove that Jordan lied to Glacier National Law Enforcement and every other law enforcement agency that she encountered in order to hide her crime. The fake email account was traced to the IP address at her father's house, and they planned to present the text messages between Jordan and her best friend. They intended on calling 60 witnesses to the stand, including Jordan's friend who told authorities about their conversation at the church that night, that Cody had fallen and was dead, a full day before Jordan led family and friends to his body. And that black piece of cloth found near Cody's body? Forensic examination found six human hairs on it. The prosecution believed Jordan had used it to blindfold Cody before she pushed him. The trial began December 9th, five months after Cody's murder. Jordan insisted she had acted in self-defense. The prosecution said the opposite, that she had intended to kill her husband of eight days. The coroner testified about the black piece of cloth found near his body and that Cody had sustained an eight-inch fracture on his forehead. CNN reported that when the judge asked Jordan what happened, she told them about their deadly argument in the park, that she had doubts about getting married, and she wasn't happy. She told them, it was a reckless act, I just pushed. Four days into the trial, Jordan surprised the courtroom when she changed her plea and pled guilty to second-degree murder. Those in the courtroom were shocked. Cody's mother slumped in her seat. A relative of Cody's whispered, She said guilty. And his friends held hands. In exchange for her guilty plea, prosecutors dropped the first-degree murder charge. Three and a half months later, Jordan asked the court to withdraw her guilty plea. Her lawyers argued that when the prosecution brought up premeditation in recommending a life sentence, it violated the terms of the plea deal. The judge denied the motion. Jordan was sentenced to 30 years in prison. In handing down the sentence, the judge stated that he did not see any remorse from Jordan. He also ordered her to pay $17,000 in restitution. Jordan appealed her conviction. It was denied. She resides at the newly built Federal Correctional Institute in Alabama. She is one of 1,100 inmates. Her release date is November of 2039, when she will be 48 years old. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20, with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Travis Baumgartner. Michelle climbed out of the armored vehicle with a gun holstered on her hip. 
Working with the other guards, she turned her back on Travis, trusting him to watch their backs. Instead, he pulled his gun and betrayed them all. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>